Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comet. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing. The Freedom Convoy that traveled across Canada to take root in downtown Ottawa in opposition to pandemic mandates continues to be an extremely divisive topic. Despite the fact it's been over for months, it remains very much a point of public discussion and debate, and I think this will only continue. Because the Emergencies Act inquiry doesn't wrap up until its report comes out in early 2023, and because legal processes are still winding their way through the courts for some of those persons who were charged in relation to their involvement in the convoy. We recorded a great episode when it all happened with Rupa Subramanya, who was on the ground at the time. We had a constitutional expert to join us to discuss the invocation of the act. But now that the dust has settled, maybe it's time to revisit some of the lesser known or, or overlooked facts that are so vital to understanding what it is that really went on, whatever your perspective of the Freedom Convoy. Andrew Lawton has been a radio show host and newspaper columnist with a number of outlets. He's now the senior journalist with True North, and he has a new book out called The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. Andrew Lawton joins us now. Hey, Andrew, great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me on, Anthony. Good to talk to you as always. Inside story. That's uh, that's what really interests me here about this book. Very meticulously researched. And and the conversation we've been having sort of nationally on, on Twitter or at the, at the coffee shop has been really a certain set of, I don't know, dare I say like prepackaged facts or just a couple of competing narratives. And you hear the same thing. You've been hearing it months nonstop. What you've written here is, is I think, a lot of things that, that people would be surprised to learn or just have not previously been a part of the discussion. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that for a lot of people, this thing just happened. The trucks just showed up. Maybe mm. they heard a little bit of it or saw something on social media when the trucks were on their way starting in BC and, and making the trek across the country to Ottawa. Right. But for a lot of people, this convoy just started when the trucks rolled up and parked on Wellington Street. And it was grassroots. It was organic. For a lot of the truckers, they did just show up. They weren't part of any organized group or organized movement. But what was fascinating to me, and I, I saw this when I was in Ottawa covering this, is they developed an organization. You had this group of people, some of them were truckers, some of them were political activists, but this group of people that came together and formed an organization and later on a literal corporation, a not-for-profit corporation right. to support this protest. And, and there were so many different layers of it happening off the streets, uh, beneath the surface that just wasn't captured in the media coverage. And, and my thinking on this was that, you know, whether you support the convoy or not, I, I think this is a, a tremendous part of Canadian political history that people, I think, would be fascinated to learn all that went into. No, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's so important for so many reasons. Again, like I said, whatever one's opinion of it, if someone's strongly supportive or or opposed to it or neutral to it. I mean, before we get into to some of these fascinating details that you've written about here, Andrew, I mean, one thing that I've, I've, I found so interesting back when it was happening, and I find interesting still, is that people just have 180, not just perspectives and opinions, which, you know, happens in a democracy, but 180 views of the basic facts of what happened. And when you talk to two different people about uh, what was the Freedom Convoy, you're going to hear like, like not just different facts that they choose to accentuate or amplify, but totally contradictory realities as well. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the chapters is called Dueling Narratives for that reason, because we mm. really did see these complete, like, parallel track narratives and stories where it was like a Rorschach inkblot test. People were looking at this thing and coming to wildly, wildly different conclusions. And, and a lot of the media coverage, I think, was very affirming in that way. People that hated the convoy would look at the coverage or, as in the case of a lot of mainstream media malfeasance, create the co the coverage and they would do it focusing on these isolated things that really cast the convoy in the, the worst light. And, and I think the flip side of that is you had some people that were supporting the convoy that were dismissive, I'd say perhaps excessively so, of some very legitimate criticisms. And convoy right. organizers, as I talk about in the book, were very aware of that. I mean, things like people that were involving themselves that really were inviting a lot of negative coverage and, and stuff like that. But uh, as this went on, you had, you know, the Justin Trudeau fringe minority with unacceptable views side of things. And then you had the, you know, freedom fighters fighting against COVID mandate side of it. And both of these groups for the same three-week period were looking at the same events and everything was still, I think, very reinforcing of their existing views of it. I mean, that famous tweet from Trudeau where he's like, okay, the convoy people, they're racist, they're sexist, they're transphobic, they're Islamophobic, like actually using all those phrases, you're like, what, what is going on? And I know everyone was, the people who wanted to malign them, they, they always reference, I guess there's this one Nazi flag on the periphery and it's like, what's that loser doing? Meanwhile, I, I went and uh, watched a Toronto event that was in solidarity, I guess, with the Ottawa one. And there were, there were two pride flags that, that two gentlemen were holding, two rainbow flags. It's like, okay, you know, what, what does that mean? And you got one Nazi flag flag, but you got two pride flags. So does the two cancel out the one or what? It's like, oh my God, but yet you're only supposed to focus on one and not the other. And, and, uh, you know, obviously there was a huge multiracial component to what was going on in the streets of Ottawa. And that is not consistent with Trudeau's, uh, tweet either and his framing of it all, but, uh, they just, they just kept moving forward with, to your point, the dueling narratives. Yeah, and I think on the note of the diversity of the crowd, that was the one thing I found the most striking, being in Ottawa the weekend the convoy got there, as you had French Canadians and Alberta independence people and Indigenous people and Ontarians, and you had people from all over the country, from all walks of life. And for all that, you know, Justin Trudeau and the government like to talk about diversity being our, our collective national strength, there was not a lot of appreciation for the diversity that this protest brought out. And not just right. diversity of political opinion, which there was. I mean, not everyone agreed on, on every aspect of this, let alone the strategy of, of doing it. But even just these different sectarian groups that were all coming together because they had been affected by COVID mandates in different ways, whether it was a an Indigenous person that was distrustful of government imposing medical treatment or an Ontario business owner who had lost years of revenue because of shutdowns and lockdowns and restrictions. I mean, all of these people found something in the truckers that they resonated with. Yeah, and I found that what we saw, or, or what we should have seen, but a lot of people plugged their ears to it, was a deeply human experience. So much earnestness, so much raw passion for various different reasons. Like you said, whatever is going on with their lives, and they came to Parliament Hill to articulate that, to vent that, to just, just lay it all on the table and just throw all those emotions out there. And one wishes that we could have been a bit more sensitive to that. Yeah, they should have. And it was actually quite shameful that it wasn't happening. I mean, you mentioned in your introduction Rupa Subramania, who did tremendous work. And I, I've said that Rupa, it shouldn't have been so 
groundbreaking what she did, which was literally just walking around talking to people and trying to right. understand who they were and, and why they were there. And, and even as someone who had covered the convoy in, in the course of interviewing people for writing this book, I was asking a lot of them. And I, I was amazed even as someone who had covered it with how much new information I was learning about why people got involved and, and how people got involved and people who've never been part of a political protest in their life that ended up taking on key roles. And in some cases, people who had never even voted or hadn't voted in years that were involved in, in what was a, a very political protest. All right. Talking about all the new things that you've unearthed, or at least the train that hasn't been well trod by the public discussion, let's go back to the beginning of it all, how it came about, the organization of it, as you alluded to. Uh, we know that this was predominantly or most vocally in response to a trucker mandate that only came into effect in January 2022 and was probably only conceived by the liberal government, I'm going to guess, like a few weeks before it happened. And yet in the book, you write that the idea for this came about in August 2021, probably before they even knew that they were going to do a trucker vaccine mandate. What's this about August 2021? Yeah, it it was interesting because there were a couple of different tracks that all sort of merged together because different people had the idea of a convoy, which had been done before in Canada a couple of years ago in in 2019 with the United We Roll convoy, which, you know, raised a a six-figure sum of money, made a bit of a splash, but wasn't really as earth-shattering as the Freedom Convoy was. But but the idea of using a, a convoy to Ottawa for political protest existed. So, what had happened was in Australia in August, there were a, a group of truckers that decided to do a, a little bit of a jam up on the highway to make a stink about COVID mandates. And I, I don't even know how many there were. I think it was a, a few dozen and the whole thing w- was done in a day. They made a point, they got a couple of headlines and that was that. And, and there was one guy in Canada who had said on Facebook when that story came up, you know, what about a convoy to Ottawa? And that was it and had a little bit of traction. And then there was a, another aspect of this, which I, I focus a little bit more on in the book, a woman by the name of, of Bridget Belton, who is in southwestern Ontario. She's a, a cross-border trucker who, like many of them in Canada, is no longer able to cross the border because she she's not vaccinated. And in December, she was driving from the U.S. to Canada. The vaccine mandate for truckers didn't exist. And she doesn't wear a mask. She has asthma. She has some post-traumatic stress because of a, a violence that she was the victim of. She, she doesn't like having her face covered. And she was threatened with arrest at the border in Windsor, Ontario, I think it was, for not wearing a mask while sitting in her truck alone talking to the border officer. And she found this whole thing very... Sorry, and when was this? This was in December. Oh. So the vaccine mandate didn't exist yet. And she was just so rattled by it because this was capping off just two years of restrictions, of lockdowns, of feeling like a second-class citizen in her own country because she wasn't vaccinated. And and afterwards, she really it, it really affected her. And, and then she kind of just had this idea of doing a convoy. And she didn't know what it was going to look like. She she had never organized anything like this, but she had this idea and, and she linked up with a couple of other truckers on TikTok of all places and, and really pushed this. And, and it, it came together. That was the, the track that, that I think really morphed into what we know as the convoy. But then she linked up with uh, James Botter, who was the one who had uh, paid attention to the Australia case. And, and then all of these people started coming together that were all at, at different parts of their frustration but all believed that something had to be done. Tamara Lich, one of the most 
I think, visible organizers of the convoy appearing at the press conferences. The person whose name was initially attached to the GoFundMe, I guess her name was always attached, but initially it was just her attached to that GoFundMe account. And of course, the person, she was charged, and now she's finally gotten some of her bail conditions uh, released. But sort of the most prominent individual, I did not expect you would begin the story with this lady named Bridget, who I've never heard of before. How do we transition from Bridget to Tamara? That That's a great question. And one of the challenges is that there are a lot of people that were throughout the course of the convoy really, I'll say, uncertain about who was in charge. And, and the answer to that question, is, as the book tries to explain, is that no one was really in charge. This was very grassroots. Organizer is a very loosely defined term in the book and also among the people that I would call organizers. And, you know, who's an organizer and who's a volunteer? But uh, Tamara Leach was early, she was involved very early on when this thing started to come together. And what happened with Tamara is she said, listen, you guys are, are great. You're talking about this on TikTok, but you've got to be very cognizant of social media. You've got to have a unified message. You've got to set up a Facebook page so that people know where they're going to get information about the convoy from. And she said, maybe we can raise some money. And she was thinking like $20,000 to buy some truckers, some sandwiches, and maybe a bit of fuel. Well, wasn't that was, the goal on the first GoFundMe? That's what they wanted yeah. to get, 20000 Yeah, that, and that was what she was thinking. And, and it was Chris Barber who was, uh, along with Bridget Belton, they were the two that really drove this idea, no pun intended. Chris Barber said, well, maybe we should set it at, I think it was $100,000 or it might have been 250000 And Tamara thought, like, you're crazy, that's insane, I'm, I'm not doing it. And I think she eventually settled on a hundred, but, you know, would have been happy with 20000 but I, I'm getting ahead of myself here because the whole point is that all of these people just kept coming forward and, and anyone who wanted to help out would. Uh, Tamara Leach, she got involved because she wanted to uh, be the voice of the convoy. Because remember, uh, Bridget and Chris Barber, who again was another more prominent organizer of this, they were driving truck. They were on the road. They were on the road when this thing was happening and they didn't have the ability to just sit down in front of their computer all day. So uh, Tamara came on as someone who wasn't a trucker and someone who said, yeah, I, I really want to make this work. I really want to talk about this and be the voice of the convoy. And that's what has been, I think, the face that most people associate with it. Well, another face that's associated with the convoy, rightly or wrongly, is a fellow named Pat King, and he has faced a number of charges, uh, I believe when it includes uh, the the counts of perjury and obstruction of justice that were uh, added to the mix in, I guess, in April. He has over 10 charges that he is facing right now, and he's going through that legal process. There's controversy, I guess, as to whether or not it's fair to even call Pat King an organizer or leader of the convoy, as a lot of people did and as a lot of news stories did. Tell me about the controversy around King and the support and then both opposition to him that came from the other uh, leaders of this movement. Yeah, th I mean, Pat King was, if I'm being perfectly frank here, the weak link for the convoy because he has said a lot of things that uh, really do not stand up. And, and some you could say, okay, maybe it was taken out of context, but a lot of stuff that he said that I, I don't think is defensible and I don't agree with. And, and if you were looking to delegitimize the convoy, he was an easy way to do that. And, and it's undeniable that he was involved at the very beginning. He was involved uh, from the ground level and it was on his show that he does on Facebook when this idea with Bridget Belton, with Chris Barber, with a couple of others was first presented in, in any public way. So Pat King was very much involved. He was never steering the ship, though. I mean, he was a booster of it. He was a promoter of it. 
he he was never an organizer but he did have an audience and he did have a following and for this group that really just wanted to get the word out certainly that following was helpful to them and they had a lot of people that came to them because they heard about it on Pat King's uh, channel but what was interesting is how early on organizers really tried to distance themselves from Pat King because the media was writing about him right up until the end of the convoy and I, I think even still now but the organizers had on the way to Ottawa, I'll give a little bit of a juicy bit that hasn't been reported before, except for in my book, they told him to go home. They told him to go home. They, they went to him. I forget the city it took place on. And they said, Pat, get in the car and go home. And it sounded Tamara like, swore at him. Yeah, your book says. she did. Yes. I won't say it on the podcast, but you can read it in its uncensored glory in the book. And they thought that they had broken through to him and then they saw him at the next city and realized oh he's he's still here he's doing his own thing and and that was really the the pattern that stayed around is that you know they could distance themselves from pat king they could disavow and denounce him but he was his own man and he was doing his own thing but but he was never embraced as an organizer by the actual organizers we'll be back in just a moment with more full comment with andrew lawton Andrew, one of the most, I think, strongest claims made against the convoy and its participants is that they were basically engaging in sedition because they wanted to overthrow the government. And the government was happy to amplify that, yes, this is going on. This is uh, their intentions. You didn't really hear that from them at their press conferences. And it wasn't really what people were saying, uh, walking out and about in the street or, or doing the dance parties or the bouncy castle. But there was a memorandum, a manifesto that was circulating, calling for something like that to happen for the governor general to get involved. What was the real deal with this thing, this memorandum? Where did it come from and what role did it play? So James Bader, James Bader, who was the, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, who had really come across this idea in August of doing a convoy and tried to do a convoy in December on his own, but it, it didn't really gain any traction. But he had, again, played a role early on. And he was someone that I would say in the beginning was an organizer. He had a website. He had said, we need a central place of information that we can post the routes and the itinerary, and we need to plan the maps and book accommodations. So he came to the table and said he was prepared to do that and again all of these people including people that have lives and jobs that are on the road are saying yeah you're offering to help that's fine do it and one of his pet projects was this memorandum of understanding which in short he thinks is a contract that if enough citizens sign they can enter into an agreement with the governor general and the senate and form a citizen crown committee of sorts that can have some sort of a direct influence over policy and he's written this thing in legalese and he cited statutes and treaties and all of that but in short it's nonsense it's legal nonsense it's gobbledygook it means nothing but if you don't know better it looks convincing because it's written and structured in the way of all of these things and and it's not were people really taken in by it were there people I, actually calling for this know. reading it and saying let's okay this is what we want yeah i mean people did sign it like people did sign it i don't know how many of them read it or how many of them were just trusting people uh, but people right. were signing it but he was promoting this long before the convoy and when he was involved in the convoy he said yeah maybe we can use this as well and he he did promote it and push it in there and I spoke to some of the organizers who were saying, yeah, I mean, it was just this thing he was doing. I, I don't know. And, and early on, Benjamin Dichter, who another another gentleman that was one of the so-called official spokespeople of the convoy, who Tamara Leach brought on, he was the one that really tried to put the kibosh on that and say, this is 
No, we, we do not want anything to do with this. Uh, we need to make our message clear. What we believe is that we changed governments through elections. But even then, the convoy wasn't looking for a change in government. They were looking for a change in policy, which right. is, I think, really what the protest is all about. So once they got through these growing pains, they did get rid of James Bowder. They did get rid of the memorandum of understanding. Uh, James himself had rescinded it at one point, although... Then a couple of weeks later, he he republished it again. But it was one of those things that <laughs> to the media became the story and the essence of the convoy. Right. If you were talk to, talking to a trucker on Wellington Street and you said, hey, how about that memorandum of understanding? They'd be like, what? What's the move? Like, what's, uh, like, what? If you were to talk to like Tamara Leach and BJ Dichter and Chris Barber, they're like, oh, isn't that that thing James meant? Like it was it was never actually a, a real reality uh, for the people involved in the convoy, except for for James. Talking about the people out on the street, what we actually saw, the main event, part two of your book titled The Block Party. And it's quite an interesting title, The Block Party, because I know the celebratory factor of it has, well, you couldn't ignore it because it was what was happening, although there's obviously debate about the, the tone and the actual happenings on the street, both daytime and nighttime. Why did you title part two The Block Party, the story of what actually went down? I was trying to capture the essence of what the convoy was to the people there. And to them, that's what it was. And that was the thing I found so striking because when I got to Ottawa that first weekend, I was staying at the Sheridan, which is just a you know a couple of blocks from center block on Parliament Hill. And you walked in and the first thing I noticed is, oh my goodness, the mask mandate in Ottawa is dead. Because everyone there was just walking around mask-free. And the hotel, which had been dutifully trying to hand out masks to people, had given up at that point. Because they had taken over the town. They had taken over the hotels and the restaurants and the, and the streets. And they were living the life, what I felt was anyway, the life that they felt they had been robbed for the last years. Without mask mandates, without being able to gather, without being able to go into places, without your vaccine passport and stuff like that. And that was the atmosphere and all of these little absurdities that people latched onto, like the bouncy castle or the hot tub or the pig roast or the pizza oven or the saunas. I mean, all of these things were, were oddities in a way, but they were part of this general atmosphere that people were there for the long haul and they were there for a good time. And it was a protest. But the way they protested was just by living, by just living in this little space of a few square blocks in Ottawa that they had taken over and were really governing in a lot of respects the way they thought the country should be governed, which was just people doing what they wanted. Let's talk for a moment about the honking and where that came from, because I think even people I know, even people who were supportive of the convoy, supportive of ending the mandates, were like, well, yeah, I guess if I kind of lived there, I'd be kind of frustrated at the honking too. Maybe they should stop that. And the honking was almost the most debated part. And you saw those videos of people running out into the street. Almost, there's one guy, I think he was tearing his hair out, literally screaming, stop the honking, please. Where did this idea come from? The incessant honking. I, I mean, I don't know where it came from. I mean, it might just be that they're trucks and that's what trucks do. They right. honk. I mean, Fair I remember enough. as a kid, I remember as a kid, you know, when you drive down the highway, you do the little like, uh, you know, pull down with your arm as though you had a string to get a truck that you uh, pull. I don't know if kids still do it today, but to get a truck beside you to honk. And it's just kind of a, a fun thing. 
And what I did in, in what I did notice in Ottawa was that it was just a celebration at first. I mean, you had people just honking. It was like their way of applauding from within their trucks when people were speaking and, and whatnot. But it, it was bad. I mean, the first day, I think people had a bit more tolerance to it because, OK, it's new. It's exciting. We're all here. But that night, I mean, I did not get a wink of sleep for hours and hours until I could finally like tune it out. And even then I like bolted awake at I think three in the morning because I heard a honk. And I don't even know if it was a real honk. There's like this phenomenon now called like phantom honking where people in Ottawa were saying it's like long COVID long honk. Yeah. Yeah. It was the long honk where even after the honking stop, you still just keep hearing it burning into your ears. But what was interesting, and I found this fascinating, there was an injunction, a legal battle, where the residents of Ottawa filed a class action suit, which was widely reported, and a judge gave the injunction to to stop the honking, which uh, largely happened. I am not actually aware of anyone being charged with breaking that injunction. But what I found fascinating, every single organizer I asked about it said they were so grateful when that injunction came because then they could go to the trucks and say, yeah, you've got to stop or they'll arrest you (laughs) because they all hated it too. Like they were all tired of the honking as well, but they didn't want to go around telling people what to do. But the injunction gave them an excuse to, but yeah, that was the funny thing is that even the convoy people hated the honking. I mean, one of the most interesting aspects of this, the confluence of, of personalities is that you had the people who had lost the most from dealing with COVID-19, whatever you think of whether one should or shouldn't get vaccinated. I mean, the people's situations that brought them to Ottawa were such that they felt they had lost so much and it was worth it. And so many of the residents of Ottawa, and I say this is someone who lived in Centretown for a number of years, very familiar with the Glebe area, uh, where a lot of the, the uh, I think the most firmest anti-convoy sentiment was, these were people who were most insulated against the damages of lockdowns. Uh, public servants, senior public servants, people who are making six figures a year who have guaranteed wage increases. This has been reported on all the raises that public servants got. I mean, it's an interesting dichotomy to bring those two sort of not just opposing perspectives of what happened during the convoy, but opposing types of persons of what their whole pandemic experience was. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And and one of the big challenges, and I didn't really get into it in the book because I, I was trying to focus on the narrative of the convoy more than the you know broader philosophical implications of right. it. But there was something to be said about what Ottawa's place is in Canada because to people outside of Ottawa, Ottawa's a symbol. It's the nation's capital. It's a place where you can go and and have your voice heard in front of where government sits. But it's also a city. And people live in that city and it has a municipal government and municipal services. And and that was, uh, as we saw, one of the big themes that I, I think would challenge the convoy's legitimacy to people later on is the effect it was having on residential areas. But you are right about that. I mean, Ottawa is overwhelmingly a city inhabited by public servants. The woman who filed the class action lawsuit, the, who represented the class, she was herself a public servant who worked for the government. And, and there was a, a very significant divide there. I mean, the people who had been heralded as the essential workers, the pandemic heroes, truckers, and other folks for the last two years, all of a sudden were up against those who didn't lose anything to the pandemic. And I, and I don't want to be presumptuous. I mean, some of them would have been denied the right to have their weddings or go to family funerals or visit people in hospitals. But the economic harm that was right. really, really devastating for so many of the people protesting in the convoy 
a lot of government workers were immune to that. No, and, and I know there was the the meme or whatever, the slogan that convoy participants said, what I, whether it was the honking or whether it was just the presence of the convoy, it said, oh, you know, just two more weeks, they would kind of tease at people. But, you know, there's there's something, there's an undercurrent to that. There's, there's, there's something being said there. I mean, I remember this, oh, we're going to shut your kid's school down for two more weeks, Fury. No, I want my kid's school opened right now because you told me two more weeks, two weeks ago, et cetera, et cetera. I want the local business to have the freedom to open right now. Stop telling me this two more weeks thing. And people would just, people who were very supportive of those lockdowns and measures would kind of laugh it off. And and I think a lot of people felt like this was symbolic of them getting their revenge, rightly or wrongly, whether that was fair or not fair. Yeah, I think that was, that was certainly a narrative that formed. And it was not something that I heard from the protesters themselves that, you know, they were not there. Hmm. The ones that I spoke to for punitive reasons, they, they didn't want right. to put harm on anyone. They were actually trying to, in their view, liberate everyone. I mean, that was the one thing that was right. so striking early on is they said, we're not protesting for truckers. We're protesting for everyone. We're protesting for everyone that's living under the mask mandates and the vaccine passports. And, and that was why later on the truckers were actually very receptive to the idea of moving off of residential streets. And and one of the things I I found so interesting, Mm. they weren't on residential streets because they were trying to protest on the residential streets. They were on them because there was no room for them anywhere else. And when the streets got jammed up and police started putting blockades in, a lot of trucks just had to stop where they were. And that became their home for the next three weeks. And for all of the organization that did go into the convoy, that was the one thing that was the least organized. Trucks just were where they were. And they stopped when they stopped. They stopped when they couldn't advance any further. And as a result, the residential streets around downtown ended up getting full. But that was never part of the plan. The celebratory atmosphere, it definitely ended up bringing people from from Quebec, from other provinces, other regions that really had had nothing to do with the truckers. Yeah, and I mean, this was one of the weird criticisms that people would make about the convoy. They'd say, well, they aren't even truckers. It's like, well, I mean, they have trucks, which I think is a pretty compelling argument that they are truckers, but they did bring a lot of other people. I mean, some of them were there living in their trucks. Other people were there who've never been in the trucking industry, but supported the message that the truckers sparked. And they did come out because of that. And it wasn't just political conservatives, as I mentioned earlier. Like, there's one woman I I talk about in the book very briefly who had a sign that said, fully vaxxed, BIPOC, pro-choice. And she, a BIPOC being black indigenous person of color, so she was an ethnic minority, a left-wing pro-choice person, fully vaccinated herself, but said, we need to stand against vaccine mandates because pro-choice means pro-choice. And this was a woman, I interviewed her at the time uh, when I saw her in Ottawa, whose story and whose connection to the convoy, I think would be shocking to Canadians that were just reading the CBC and Toronto Star version of it, who want to just cast these people as the knuckle-dragging, racist, white supremacist, anti-science troglodytes. How do you think this is ultimately going to be remembered, Andrew? Because 
right now, the Emergencies Act inquiry is going to take a number of months uh, to happen. But I feel like a lot of the original arguments that at least the Liberal government was making uh, vis-a-vis what really went down, because of course, to, to do the inquiry, the inquiry is really supposed to be about uh, why did you invoke the act? But clearly the Liberal government wants to make it a sort of relitigation of the whole thing. The idea that this wasn't grassroots, that this was like shady foreign uh, operation, like various shadowy NGOs or whatever from other countries running all of this, um, that it, it was just, you know, not diverse at all. Uh, things that have been completely exposed is not correct. I mean, I can just go, I don't have the time to go through the laundry list of things that are inaccurate. That's going to be further, I think, ingrained into the public consciousness. I mean, the question, how is it going to be remembered? I have to put in the plug. It depends how many people buy my book. Uh, my, my hope is that it challenges that narrative a bit. And even if it doesn't uh, turn people into convoy supporters, which is not my intention and, and not the way the book is written, that it will shine a light on who they were and why it happened and why they did what they did and, and how. But, I mean, you raise an important point, and, and I think a lot of it depends on how this public inquiry actually unfolds and, and whether it does get into the meat of what was happening and, and why. And there also needs to be some accountability from the government on this, because the government justified the Emergencies Act by talking about all of these things that really did not materialize and no evidence has supported, such as violent conspiracy and organized groups and foreign influence and, and foreign money. And my hope is... Burning that down an apartment building. I mean, that was the wildest yeah. thing. And, and well, people clearly wanted it to be true. And there there was there was an attempt to do it uh, by, by two individuals. And I know there was uh, CCTV footage of these guys doing it but they had nothing to do with the convoy. But there's this desperate energy to say, no, the convoy tried to burn down a, a, a full apartment building with whatever, 500 residents. Yes, and even when that was debunked, when Ottawa police finally came out, you know, months later and said, yeah, 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 this had nothing to do with the convoy. Even when that happened, the person who initially set the narrative, the guy who I think lived in that building and tweeted about it, he wouldn't back down. He said, well the convoy created a culture of lawlessness that allowed something like this to happen, which is there is zero, zero interpretation of reality that would support that conclusion. But right. you are right. People desperately wanted it to be true. And, and when you trace back the media coverage about this, as I did early on in the book, you see that the prediction of violence came before the convoy was even in Ottawa. It came long before then because people needed it to be true to delegitimize it. They were seeing this movement that was gaining momentum, that was attracting a broader coalition than just the normal anti-lockdown, anti-COVID mandate protesters. And I think the people that wanted to delegitimize it started sowing this idea of extremism and violence, which never in the course of the three weeks materialized. The people, name names, and that primary name is Justin Trudeau. I remember those statements, yeah. those tweets from cabinet ministers. Oh, we hope there isn't a January 6th style insurrection. We hope this doesn't, and you're like, really? You hope it doesn't happen? Sounds like you want it to happen. Why are you even talking about it? Because nobody's saying that these are their intentions, but you seem to be gearing up for it. Yeah, and but it wasn't just Justin Trudeau. It, it was a lot of media coverage as well. I mean, there was one that I, I talk about in the book where they quoted an expert saying that, you know, all the people that are donating to it might be strung up on terror financing charges. Now, and she, she was not saying that as a prediction, although with the Emergencies Act later on, she might have been closer mm. to the money than I thought she was initially. But you just saw that there were people that desperately wanted this to be something that it wasn't. And they refused to accept even 
when faced with the evidence that these were a group of people that might have been rough around the edges, but they were not violent. They were there to have a good time. They were there to make a point. They didn't get everything they wanted or even the main thing they wanted initially, which was an end to the trucker mandate. But they did make themselves heard and seen. Andrew, one thing that was so eye-opening for me and so illustrative of what was really going on in terms of the public support was when the list of the funders was released. And then somebody took it and did a geolocation Google yeah, Maps of yeah. it where they plugged every household in the country that donated to it. And something like six hours later, Google took it down because it was a violation of terms of service. But I looked at it. I said, wow. And I looked all across the country. I looked in my neighborhood. And, you know, there's only one person on every street. So, okay, fine. It obviously wasn't majority of Canadians. But one person on every street in my downtown NDP writing. And then I click and it would have the name. And I go, oh, this is a guy who lives you know, 10 houses down from me and I didn't know the person and it was not, didn't seem to be a white supremacist. I remember it was a, a Middle Eastern name. You go, oh, who's, who's that gentleman? And two streets away from me, oh, this person. And I thought, well, what's going on in Ottawa? And I looked, the next door neighbor of Justin Trudeau and I saw the comment the lady had put uh, in, in Rockcliffe Park and she was upset that her children had been denied schooling. And you went and checked in Vancouver and you thought, wow, it literally won on like every second street, whatever the riding, whatever the neighborhood. And it's like, Folks, don't, you know, maybe this isn't your cup of tea. Maybe you're against the convoy, but there's a lot of people who you're coming into contact with at your grocery store, on your street, playing in your kid's park, who they felt like there was something and they were very different reasons to support it. But there was some reason there that they felt, I want to give 10 bucks or a hundred bucks to this thing. This speaks to me. Yeah. And you may remember when the Emergencies Act was invoked and the government started cracking down on funding. I remember the very real fear that people who gave $10 had that their accounts were going to be frozen just because of how vague the thing was worded and how little communication there was from the government and, and people that did exactly what you did. They said, you know what? I like these truckers. I'm against vaccine mandates. I think they have you know, got that Canadian spirit and I want to show them a little bit of support and, you know, chip in five or 10 bucks. These people that felt like they had ruined their life because of it, these people that felt they actually were going to have their accounts frozen and have a red mark on their uh, credit report and all of that. And, and that was significant. And, and the fact that you had media that were systematically going through and, and calling these people up and doxing them, I think was shameful. And I still don't think there's been any real accountability from outlets that went down that road, including notably CBC, for what they did there. I asked you, how do you think this will be, event be remembered? A related question, what do you hope people take from your book? If they take only one thing. If they take one thing from my book, I, I hope it's an understanding that this was far more complex and sophisticated than a lot of people saw. And that is not a judgment for or against. It's just a, a sense of the reality of the situation here. And one of the big reasons for that, Anthony, is that you had people who had been laid off because of vaccine mandates, who were nurses, soldiers, police officers, firefighters that had skills, time on their hands, and an ax to grind with the government. And they all took those skills that they had from their lives and put it into organizing this convoy. And that was the most, the, the most interesting thing I found is just how dedicated these people were to making it happen. And there was a, a sophistication to it, even in a raw grassroots fly by the seat of your pants kind of way that was really what got me writing this because I, I knew that people just weren't seeing that from the press coverage. 
Andrew Lawton, thanks so much for joining us today. Great conversation. Hey, thank you, Anthony. Really appreciate it. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. And you can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.